You're listening to Trek FM. There was a little bar in Mill Valley where all the Starfleet trainees used to go. The 602 Club. You know it. <laughs> I was there more times than I can remember. I'm going after that truck. Oh, I don't know. I'm making this up as I go. Welcome, everyone, to Trek FM's local watering hole. It might look a little bit different today. Um, the, if, if somebody just kind of wanders in with a hat and a bullwhip, just just let them pass. Uh, hopefully, there won't be any fights. We just got this place cleaned up. Uh, Marion has been filling in for Ruby, and uh, hopefully, it, it, it'll be okay. Um, I don't know about you guys, though. I, I, I worked out all day, and the only part of me that doesn't hurt is my elbow. Uh, so, uh, of course I'm your host, Matthew Rushing, and, uh, I've got some great guests with me today. Uh, John Champion, it's great to have you back in the 602. Matt, I'm so glad to be here. And remember, it's not the years, it's the mileage. Exactly. You know? Exactly. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes I feel that more than others. Yeah. We all do. We all do. Watch out for that mirror. And- that's right. <laughs> well, why do you think I've been in the gym? Mirror's <laughs> like letting me know it's time to change something. Uh, Norm, Hello. it's great to have you back. Yeah, gra- glad to be back. Glad to be back. And uh, word to the wise: never, ever, ever get into a an alcohol shot championship tournament with Marion Ravenwood ever, because your oh, day God. will turn into night real quick. Uh, <laughs> that I mean, yeah. Guys, like I, I think you probably know what we're going to be talking about tonight, which is is Raiders. But I want to take you back to a scene that that I just love thinking about. George Lucas is vacationing in Hawaii. He is exhausted after finishing the original Star Wars. He is watching the results come in for the box office. It is it is a huge hit, and with him standing there on the beach is his good friend Steven Spielberg. And Spielberg mentions that he would like to direct a Bond movie. And George tells him that he has something better, Indiana Smith. Stephen would go on to direct, obviously, and fortuitously, he would convince George to change the name to what we all know as Indiana Jones. And the rest, as they say, is cinema history. One of the most interesting things, guys, what if Indy, though, had had a stash a lot of fans, I think, already know is that uh, Indiana Jones may have been Tom Selleck. In fact, he was offered the role and had to turn it down because of previous entanglements with another show. What if Tom Selleck had played Indiana Jones, guys, in, instead of Harrison Ford? Especially since George Lucas really didn't want Ford to become that guy that was in every single one of his movies, a lot like Martin Scorsese has with, you know, especially these days, uh, De Niro, and then now it's DiCaprio. How do you think the movie might have changed? What do you think it might have looked like? John? Go ahead, Norman. I'm I'm sure you've got thoughts on this. Um, Well... First of all, I think the uh, the theme song would have changed from dun 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 to dun 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 dun. So dun dun dun. For all of the who don't know, that was Magnum PI. It's an interesting thing because in the early 1980s, you had a really nice slew of very hunky, very capable actors on TV that could have really made the crossover to the big screen. Tom Selleck was one of them. Lee Horsley was another one of them, Lee Horsley of Matt Houston fame at the time, uh, and of another really great sword and sorcery film um, called Sword and the Sorcerer. 
and also John Eric Hexum, who was um, also kind of like on the rise at the time, and he uh, was in a show called Voyagers. They were all super candidates for this role, but I think if Tom Selleck got the role of Indiana Jones, he has a little bit more of an upbeat tongue-in-cheekness to him, whereas Harrison Ford's Indiana Jones, he just looked just irritable all the time because he just couldn't he just couldn't close the deal sometimes someone who always was always one step ahead of him and he played that off so well belloc always had the drop on him and he was so mad about it all the time and i don't think that tom Selleck had that uh that side to him where he's just you know he's just upset that he just can't get ahead of his peer so but that's how that's how i that's how I understood Tom Selleck from Magnum. Um, as we know, in, in, in future movies, you know, he has a really great range. But I think at the time, this was just one of those things where the stars aligned. Where, I mean, could you imagine being in that meeting with George and Stephen on a beach in Hawaii as a fly on the wall and listening to them create the framework for this? Gosh, that that would have been legendary. That would have been that would have been a memory just for the ages. So I think that I think it just had to be for some reason or another. The, the stars aligned, and and Harrison Ford, whether he was the right guy or the wrong guy, ended up being the guy that was necessary, not necessarily the guy who who may have been wanted at the time. So you're saying that if if Tom Selleck had been the role, basically he would have been like the Roger Moore of Indiana Jones. Instead of, you know, the Sean Connery, which is Harrison Ford. <laughs> I'm going to let Mr. Champion field that one. That's interesting. Yeah. Uh, well, there are a lot of actors talked about for Indy. Everybody from Nick Nolte to Jeff Bridges to um, Bill Murray. You know, it's just like a weird collection of actors that, that were talked about. But Tom Selleck arguably came the closest um, to actually getting that role and actually doing that movie. And I kind of understand every argument against Harrison Ford. I kind of get it, because if you're George Lucas and you go, well, wait, I just put that guy in Star Wars, and that was kind of an accident. He was just like the the guy who was right under my nose, who I was not considering for that role. He was just in there reading lines with other actors who were auditioning. And I've already got him for two more movies, Am I either spreading this actor too thin, maybe exploiting him a little, maybe confusing the audience as to who this character is, the, this this actor is? And um, so I, I get any hesitation that they might have had doing it. And then I think about what Indy would have been with Tom Selleck. And Tom Selleck's great as Magnum. There's no question about it. But... Norman, I think you kind of hit the head, uh, hit the nail on the head there about the problem of having Tom Selleck. Harrison Ford's got the scar, and he, he's kind of got this this look where, no matter what he does, he he's kind of a little bit of a fish out of water. And as he says, he's just making it up as he goes along. You know, there's something about him that is so believable, so true. And I think when you see Tom Selleck and Magnum. There's something about it that's even more fantasy fulfillment. He's the—he's not the good-looking guy. He's the great-looking guy. Right. And he's the great-looking guy with the Ferrari. And he's the great-looking guy who gets everything that he wants. And and he, he plays comedy. I think he, he's at his best when it's tongue-in-cheek. 
But Harrison Ford can do tongue-in-cheek in a way that is believable. It's about finding the humor in a situation instead of making jokes. And we did talk about that a little bit on our uh, on our Bond recap. I don't think Tom Selleck would have been as far as the Roger Moore of Indiana Jones, but it definitely would have been lighter and it would have been a different kind of humor from what Harrison Ford does. I mean, have you guys, you've all seen Harrison Ford in interviews, you've seen him on award shows, just recently he was on the Golden yeah, Globes, just, uh, and, and you're all, talks like this. yeah, yeah, uh, and, and you know. you're always a little uncomfortable for him, you know, but I think part of his brilliance as an actor is that he allows you to do that with his characters, you get to feel a little uncomfortable for Indy, and, and Indy gets a lot of sympathy, He's better than all of us. He he he's quicker. He he's smarter. He does all these great things. But but you kind of feel bad for him a lot of times in these movies. Like oh man, he he really is getting his ass beat in this scene, and it could all be over for him at some point. I don't know if we always felt that about Magnum. I know we didn't feel that about Magnum. Well, a good friend of mine who is also a huge Raiders fan, um, he said the one thing that Indiana Jones is. And Harrison Ford brings out in Indiana Jones probably better than any other actor who would have been considered is that Indy is, and part of my French, and I'm going to self-censor my, you know, this, but he is an a-hole. Indy is. I mean, he is not the nicest guy sometimes, but there are circumstances where he can't afford to be nice. He has to get this job done because he owes it to himself. He owes it to Marcus. He owes it to the museum. He owes it to the promise that he kept to, you know, to... uh protecting the posterity of all of these artifacts. So he he doesn't have the social graces because he's not a guy that's about social graces. You know, he's a guy that puts on that leather jacket and he, the fedora and he gets the job done. I think he is at his most uncomfortable, obviously, when he's lecturing, you know, back at college or back at back at the university. He cannot he cannot stand being in that tweed suit because that's not who he is. It's almost as if, you know, it's the alter ego issue except that his alter ego is really uncomfortable. It makes him skin, his skin crawl. He just is not that guy. And Harrison Ford does that better than most. And, uh, you know, and, and I don't think that Tom Selleck could have flipped that switch as easy because it's always, you're, he's always handsome. You know, he's, yeah. He always has the mustache and it, he always has the dimples and he always has that kind of that twinkle in his eye. I'm not sure if he can turn that on and off as quickly, or at least at the time, as Harrison Ford could. Yeah, Harrison Ford is playing Indy as smart, but not as sly, you know, and that was the thing about the character of Magnum. And and, and we keep talking about Tom Selleck and Magnum P.I. is interchangeable, but, you know, let's face it, at the time, in 1981, that is how the audience knew Tom Selleck, and he played that for a number of years. But, but there is something about Tom Selleck where it is sort of sly, and he's in on the joke, you know. Um, and may, that is maybe a Roger Moore thing. Um, but I don't know that I don't know that the nature of the movies would have necessarily changed the way that the nature of the James Bond movies changed to match Roger Moore. Maybe, but that that's another level of speculation. I think as you guys were talking, I was thinking, okay, what is it about Harrison Ford that encapsulates this character of Indiana Jones and would make him different than Tom Selleck? And what I think. I came to, I was just listening to you guys back and forth. Harrison Ford has that John Wayne-ness where he can be the nice guy, but he can also be the complete 
as as yeah a hole like the you know John Wayne's character in the Searchers, and so he has both of those sides to him, and he can be charming and and fun and all those things, but he can also just be the guy that comes into town like the man who shot Liberty Valance, and he's the guy that nobody wants to mess with. Uh, and I think when you know Indy puts on that hat, that's who he is. He's he's like the John Wayne in this film. He's going to get the job done, or at least he's going to try and get the job done, because uh, he almost n- never gets the job done the way he hoped he would uh, in these films, and and that's that's a, a subject for for a little bit later on. But yeah, there's there's something about Ford uh, that he is able to pour into this character, and I think one of the things that it is is that even now Harrison Ford is in love with Indiana Jones as a character, and he would do one at the drop of a hat. Pardon my pun. He would love to do a fifth one. We know that. He All Lucas would have to do is call him up and say, hey, I got a great story idea. Steven, we got a great story idea. Let's do it. And they'd all do it because they love Indiana Jones. And I think that just shows through whether you like every single one of the films or, or not. Every one of them, when you're watching them, you're like, this guy is having a kick-ass good time making this movie. And that's what carries you through. Um, and, and I think um, that's what Harrison Ford brought to this role is that he became that character in a way that he doesn't with a lot of his roles because Harrison Ford is a guy who acts for a living. He's, he's, he's not an actor all the time. He just acts for a living. And he said that. Yeah, I, I make movies for a living, uh, you know, and that's what I do. He doesn't like doing the press. He doesn't like all that stuff because he's just doing it as a job. Luckily, somebody will pay him to do it because he's, he's pretty decent at it. Um, but I, I think that all comes through in this character of Indiana Jones. And it and it's, uh, like you said, Norm, it, it, it's fate. It, it was meant to be. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm glad that it turned out that way because, man, there's just something about that guy that um, I, I think men and women are all attracted to. <laughs> men want to be Indiana Jones and, and, and women want to be with him. Uh, that's just what Harrison Ford, I think, brings to that role. It is interesting that, you know, Harrison Ford is not a personality. You know, there are a lot of actors who are personalities, and it doesn't make them any better or worse of an actor. But when you think about Harrison Ford, you think about the roles that he has had. Like, you think yeah. about you think about this one guy who has been in the majority of the top grossing movies ever made. Star Wars series, the Indiana Jones series, um, and then some great movies in their own right blade runner um you know jack ryan oh of course the the jack ryan movies you know but but here's a guy that you identify with those roles and and you sort of know what you're getting into when you go see one of those movies with him you know that he's the you know that he's going to be the good guy you know he's going to be the hero but it's not it's not like a character type you're not going in there it's sort of like I'm a big Cary Grant fan, but Cary Grant was a personality, and you knew that in every Cary Grant film there might be variations on a theme, but you were basically going to see it for him. And with Harrison Ford is a little bit different, I think, you know, because we don't really know who he is off screen. We know that he's uncomfortable off screen, and Norman, that maybe is part of it that uh, that that discomfort is part of Indy's charm, um, and maybe part of Han Solo's charm as well. That he he's sort of always a fish out of water as Han Solo too. 
he he doesn't care to get involved until he kind of has to. Oh, I totally agree. And it's an interesting thing that you brought up, Cary Grant, because now I can see, whereas, say, Tom Selleck's to Cary Grant as, say, um, Gregory Peck would be to Harrison Ford. You know, you yeah. have yeah. these, they're, they're really... They're really different textures of characters and of people and as actors. So, yeah, I, I completely agree with that analogy. I think that, you know, Cary Grant and if they were up for the same part, they would bring the same type of dichotomy uh, mm-hmm. regardless of which actor you chose. They're both fantastic actors, as Tom Selleck was as well. But, yes, um, going back to the original uh, title of this part of the sequence, if what if Indy had a stash? Would they have kept the stash? Mm. That's a good question. Because really, I mean, Tom Selleck was, he was identified, you know, as as his persona of Magnum, as and that's part of his character. So would they have removed the stash to create the Indiana Jones character? Because, you know, he was, you know, a college professor. He was stubbly when he was a man of action, shaven when he wasn't. So that's just, that's just who the, the person on paper was. Would Tom Selleck have fought? To have kept that, that dude that that would have been the argument all right, all right so it would have been it would have been probably tom Selleck, george lucas and steven spielberg all saying okay we have this character we need to make him distinct from magnum p on tv you gotta lose the stash and then would have been the head of the studio and the marketing department saying no you can't do that we have to sell this movie mm-hmm. on the recognition of tom Selleck. he has to keep the stash and then the compromise would have been well when he's a professor he's clean shaven and maybe we'll see a little bit of that mustache come back when he's on an adventure right that would have been the whole conversation. But that could have been a deal breaker, too, because he may have had to do pickup shoots or have contractual obligations to do mm-hmm. Magnum, you know, on his mm-hmm. off-screen time. And what do you do? It's not like you can... It's like, you know, Cesar Romero never made that uh, sacrifice. I mean, he he was he was make-uped over his, his mustache as the Joker. So, and that was because that was... Cesar Romero had a certain look off-camera outside of the Joker. Right. So, Tom Selleck, I mean, that that is his trademark. You know, you yeah. rarely, if ever, do you see him without his signature mustache. So it could have been an issue. Not unless he's dating Monica on Friends, uh, and then he'll right. shave right. it off. Well, uh, you know, it's really, it's really weird. Yeah, I can just imagine. I imagine that meeting and George being like, oh, "I'm sorry, Tom, you're gonna, you're gonna have to change that stash. Uh, we, we can't have that on there. Uh, it doesn't work for the character." Well, that could have been in Hawaii. So, then Tom so like just hopped in his Ferrari and drove yeah, back to set. True. That's very yeah, true. Right. So. Right. Well, uh, for you, you know, guys, this movie, it's been out for uh, so long now, and uh, it's just steeped in memory for us. And what are y'all's memories, uh, both of you, because I didn't see it when it originally came out on screen, and you guys are just a little bit older than I am, so you were able to. What are y'all's memories of seeing Indiana Jones for the first time, and what kind of drew you into this character that made you stay through four films? Oh, gosh. Um, I think, well, I I saw it when I was nine years old and I was in third grade. And maybe this is, this is one of those kind of watershed moments when you're, when you're maturing into this, uh, the, the fantasy science fiction brains that we all have. Because, you know, at that time, I think you go one of two ways. You either go the, the way of like science fiction and fantasy and becoming um, an imagination geek or you go kind of like sports and the jock way, you know, and there's that separation around that age. And I obviously went this way. Uh, so when I saw Raiders, actually, it wasn't even my idea. My, my mom and dad went to go see it and they thought I would love it. 
and uh, except for one particular scene at the very end, I thought I'd be terrified of it. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it, it was it that. Was, that's never happened to you. Somebody's face yeah. just melting, just melting off. down. <laughs> yeah. You know what? Uh, not in a movie, but. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we'll, we'll we'll edit this out of the show. <laughs> now it was it was uh, I don't know. You, you, I, I had the poster. I told you guys this earlier on. I had a poster in, in my room. It was the famous Amcel poster, and it was a portrait of Indy, kind of like embedded in stone. And on the top of the poster, it said, "From the, you know, from the creator of Star Wars and the creator of uh, Close Encounters." Asked, like, and I think at nine years old, I was just able to kind of like grasp what that meant, because I knew obviously I knew Star Wars, and we were coming off of Empire Strikes Back. Uh, Close Encounters was big in you know in my wheelhouse, as was you know Jaws and how could this miss? So I went to go see it and I was like, wait a second, this is Han Solo. But I don't think that mattered at the time because it was the personality of Han Solo that kept me watching. And then as, as the character developed, I understood it was a different character. And um, I think that it probably uh, forged uh, one of the, uh, one of the greatest movie going experiences of my life because I remember clutching my face with both hands during the end sequence. I was trying to peek through my finger slits when uh, Tote's face was melting uh, from the, the power of the arc. Um, I, th- you know, my parents still thought I was a little too adult, but they knew how into it I was. They they let me go see Empire on my own. They let me go see a couple other movies of, you know, of, of a little bit of an adult nature, science fiction wise and fantasy wise on my own. So, gosh, it, it made me love fedoras. It made me love bull whips. It made me love leather jackets. And if if, if that's a if that calls if that labels me a fetishist, then so be it. um matt i'm glad that you had this question uh here on the breakdown because this is the whole reason that i wanted to do this episode of 602 because you know for a while now i've kind of been just steeped in star trek and it was nice to break out of that and talk james bond which also had a a really you know formative influence on my life you know growing up watching those movies um but Indiana Jones is special because Raiders of the Lost Ark, I remember seeing in 1981 in L.A. at the Chinese Theater, um, you know, just landmark place to see it. Uh, my family, we were, we were taking a trip out to California. My dad had a, a conference out here, and, uh, and we made it into a trip. And we, we got to do California things. You know, we stayed on the Queen Mary. And we went to Universal Studios, and we did all this stuff. But one of the highlights for me was seeing a line of people waiting to get into the Chinese theater. And then sitting in that, that huge movie palace... And the audience being so into this, they were actually cheering for the previews. They showed a preview for Superman 2, and the audience (laughs) went crazy. And it just stayed at that level throughout the whole movie. So to this day, Raiders of the Lost Ark is the movie that I have seen more than any other movie. And there are other movies that I've seen a lot. I mean, Wrath of Khan, I kind of lost count with, you know. But Raiders of the Lost Ark, I know that I had exceeded that number of viewings very early on because one of those that I had on on you know VHS right away and anytime there was a screening because it kept popping up and that that was back in the day when just 
movie theaters would show something because they had it. <laughs> you know, you didn't have to wait for like the festival circuit to pick up something that had been out of circulation for five years. Um, so I saw that movie a lot. And I remember that Halloween dressing up as Indiana Jones and probably the next one dressing up as Indiana Jones and pouring over every comic adaptation, novel, getting the toys, and like you, Norman, hanging up that poster in my bedroom. had that one, and I had a, a framed um, Last Crusade poster as well, you know, years down the road yeah. when that one came out. Um, but yeah, they were just hugely influential. And um, I, I, it's one of those where I, I know that, that if I hear one note of that music, I will then want to sit down and watch that movie, you know, and then probably go through the next two as well, um, because they're they're that good and they hold up that well for me. Um, there's a, a a little corner in my parents' house where I've still got the uh, the desert scene model playset. Oh, nice, yeah, and uh, and then a bunch of the the original figures and. Yeah, you know, it's just once you've been bitten by that bug, you you can't escape it. For me, it was a, a little bit different than you guys, and you know, I I only saw it on VHS, and then of course DVD and and Blu-ray, and in fact, now I think the Blu-ray probably looks even better than the original version of the print of the film because they went and cleaned it up, and it's just so vibrant and beautiful. Uh, I love popping in that movie just because of that because it looks so good. Um, but, uh, you know, I was at the age I'd seen Star Wars and then the next thing that kind of, you know, basically we got from the, the library next, I got into Indiana Jones and there was something about the character and his adventures that really just struck me. Like I wanted to be an archeologist then, and I wanted to be, you know, going and finding these things and, and doing these things. And, and of course, you know, that meant, um, I got a hat and a bull whip and, you know, I'd run around with my friends, you know, in the woods and, you know, we'd go searching for stuff, you know, uh, we'd play Indiana Jones. It was, it, it, it had such an impact on me and it, it's become such a part of, of my life, you know, just what I say, you know, uh, you know, it's not the years, honey, it's the mileage. I mean, we all know that and, and, be, and, and yet the best part about that line is the older you get, the more you understand what Indy's talking about. Um, you know, all of that stuff just, it resonates on so many different levels. You know, it, it's perfect for when you're that nine year old boy or that nine year old girl and you just want to watch an adventure film, you know, and that's what you respond to is the adventure part. And as you get older, you see all the layers that are in these movies. Um, and the, the, uh, Norm and I were talking about uh, way before the show earlier today uh, about the thread that kind of runs through these movies as well as kind of if you watch the films chronologically. So if you were to actually start with Temple of Doom and then watch Raiders and then watch Last Crusade and then watch Crystal Skull, there is a very interesting character progression for Indy and, and who he grows into because of the adventures he's had and what he kind of begins to respond to and believe about all the things he goes and, and searches for it's really interesting and 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 you wouldn't really expect that from just a, a movie that's based off of 30s adventure serials which i think is is one of the hallmarks of the series is bringing that back to cinema and and even in some ways just kind of improving upon it guys i'd love to talk about that 
what George Lucas and Spielberg really decided to kind of base the look and feel of these movies on and and why why it works so well in this framework. I think when uh, I first started doing a lot of research in Raiders of the Lost Ark when I was younger, there is a really, really gorgeous piece of artwork by an artist by the name of Jim Steranko. And it is it looks basically like Superman wearing the fedora and the leather jacket and an army web belt and the khaki pants. He had a pistol in his hand, the Webley, and he uh, was being flanked by a couple of Nazi tanks and their explosions going off. And I said, you know what? There is so much story going on in that one framework of of illustration that it's I just want to know more about it. It was concept piece uh, for I believe it was uh, the costuming for Indiana Jones. And it just the the really, really minor brush strokes that that show to me filled my head with such imagination. And I think that's where I think that's where this this period of history just kind of allows you to explore in because one of my all-time favorite movies is Casablanca. And there's a real romantic, um, even if you're not familiar with it, there's a real romantic aura and presence of that time period where good and evil, by and large, were very polarized. You had Nazis on one side, you had the free uh, peoples, you had the United States and the uh, allies on the other side. And in between, you had your nefarious, nebulous gray area with uh, your your clandestine organizations, your spies. Uh, and that's where I think the, the the world of Indiana Jones lives in. It lives in this uh, the, the framework of all of this, all of this clandestine, shadowy type of uh, environment where um, where do you fence all of these really cool items? There are only a couple places that would even deal with them. Who do you talk to? Who do you not? Uh, who can you trust? Who can you not? It's and then, but the thing is, is that both sides are being funded by these two huge powers. You had the Nazis funding, obviously, all of the stuff that was going on uh, that Indy was trying to trying to thwart, and then you had Indy, who was basically just trying to do this to preserve uh, the um, all of the antiquity that uh, he he cherished so much because of what he learned when he was a kid. So you saw a lot of that in the films of that time, like your Alan Quartermains. You know, your um, uh, there were a couple of films that I think that starred um, Charlton Heston, uh, Temple of the Incas, maybe I think it was. So you had. You just basically have this period of time where a lot of people just aren't really familiar with, and it becomes this huge sandbox because there weren't a lot of of films that dealt specifically in this time period. So the sky was the limit, and it just, these two guys, Spielberg and, and Lucas, just really, well, we all know that Lucas loved this time period, so it just allowed them to tap into something that was not mainstream and that's that's the brilliance of any filmmaker to to introduce you to something that they know so well but the majority of the public just doesn't really know uh enough of so they'll draw themselves into it because it's so interesting and so foreign and and now it just opens up your mind to all these different possibilities even when you're watching the film there's something cool about there's something inherently cool about that time period and there's something interesting about how the further away you get removed from history and the details get lost <laughs> and we start to paint in brushstrokes, not of 
simply days and dates and causes and effects, but but feelings and and emotions and as you describe the romance of a period. So you can take something like the 1930s for a 1980s audience, and. For some people in that audience who were middle-aged adults who had maybe grown up at that time or just after that time, and there's a, a nostalgia for the serials that they watched as a kid. But then you have an audience of Norman like me and you, you know, third graders <laughs> going into that, for whom this is a totally foreign world. But maybe you've heard a, a, a glimpse of this idea of these distant jungles and places that you could only get to on a, you know, Pan Am clipper plane that takes you 24 hours to get halfway around the world. So there, there's this this mystery that makes you sort of wonder like wow was this really real did, did did these things actually happen did people actually behave this way and was this a time that real heroes like this could exist so you kind of get lost in that historical fantasy for one thing and i think the other part of it is that when you go back to the character and the way that character fits in that world well let's look at what we had in the late 70s and early 80s. Well, we had already gotten the coolest space hero since Captain Kirk. We'd already gotten Han Solo. And Han Solo was really cool, and he's the person that, you know, all the other kids in my class looked up to. But he was also the guy who had the cool spaceship that you're never going to have. We wanted that spaceship, but we're not going to have that spaceship because a spaceship doesn't exist in real life. And then you got James Bond, and James Bond is super cool, but you're also not going to be James Bond because you don't have a submarine car and um, you're not disarming nuclear weapons, you know. But then you have a guy like Indiana Jones and he's a little gruff and he's rough around the edges and he doesn't always make the right decisions and he's not always enjoying what he's doing and he's armed with a bullwhip and sometimes a gun and a hat. And as an eight-year-old, you can get the hat. <laughs> you know, and you can get the whip and you'll probably hurt yourself with it, but you can get the whip because we, all three of us here, we had one, you know, probably still have one if I look deep <laughs> enough in my closet. But there's something relatable about that where where he grounded that character. You know, you go back to our James Bond uh, podcast and, and it takes that actor every few cycles, every few movies to come back and say, okay, we got to cut away the other stuff because we have to ground this character. If we don't, we'll lose the audience because it just becomes cartoons and science fiction. That's something that Harrison Ford is really good at. And it's, it's another one of those reasons why the time period and aping these classic serials from the 1930s fit him and his approach so well. It is a really neat thing to see how, okay, the movie is set in the 30s, so we are going to base it off of the popular entertainment of the time period. And it just, it all works so well as a great time piece then of kind of giving a romanticized view of that world. Whereas when you get to, uh, you know, say the, the Crystal Skull, they, they have to take a different approach and uh, they are going to um, reflect a different time period. And they, I think they do that in that film really well. It, it, they, they make that intentionally different. And I think it I think it works, but that's a whole other podcast we'll do. Um, that's <laughs> what I like about this this first Raiders film is that it takes something that we're slightly familiar with. And, and one of the cool things that that happened for me growing up is I watched 
a lot of old movies. Like I grew up watching John Wayne movies. I grew up watching all those Cary Grant movies. I grew up watching all of these old films. So it kind of prepared me to enjoy something and really be able to immediately get what's going on in Indiana Jones because I already understand that world because I've seen lots of movies that are reflecting that you know, 30s, 40s, 50s time period. It, it all makes sense to me. So I, I really think it's, it's it's very smart. And and obviously Lucas had already tried this and it, and it works with Star Wars, you know. So he does the, the space serial and now they just go back and they do the adventure serial. And I think the other thing that makes Raiders work so well is that you have Spielberg on one side, you have Lucas on the other, and you have the actor in the middle to, to be able to pull it all off and the two guys in charge, you know, this this is what they're passionate about. This is what they do the best is these kinds of things. And uh, you put all three of them together and you you get dynamite. Even if you don't like the fourth film, it's it's better than a lot of movies that have been out. Well, I mean, that's the that, that's the real secret. You know, the real secret of it was the, the joining of these two forces. I mean, at the time, these these two guys, Spielberg and Lucas, were the two most titanic forces in entertainment because of not because of you know just the the films at the time but because these guys they brought an entire industry together they brought industrial light and magic from the ground well, more lucas than spielberg but spielberg used industrial light and magic a lot so there was this trademark of of quality that you can associate with a film that e- that had either of their names associated with it you also brought about um well I don't, I don't want to go too far into the show but you brought about john williams because spielberg brought john williams in first and then george lucas obviously gave him probably his greatest uh greatest notoriety through star wars at the time so you had all of these assets that were at the top the highest level of quality and of influence in hollywood at the time and Sometimes it doesn't work out, but in this particular moment, I think Raiders of the Lost Ark in 1981 was the perfect storm of what Hollywood was able to create because all the elements were brought together and they all balanced each other very well. Sometimes that doesn't happen, but in this case, this is what this is what creates legends, you know, when everything works so syncopatically together like this. It's kind of a rarity, though. I mean, you know, you think about it. Spielberg and Lucas, I, I'm very curious what that working relationship was truly like on a day-to-day basis because we've seen Lucas make some not-so-great movies, <laughs> you know, and we've seen other team-ups where you kind of hope for the best and you hope that the the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. You look at Star Trek and you look at the various iterations and then finally landing us at 2009 Star Trek where ideally you have a director like J.J. Abrams, but then supported by this group of uh, uh, writers and and some with a lot of experience with Star Trek and some without. And what you hope for is that you, you build in a series of checks and balances so only the best stuff comes to the top. And with Raiders, I, I think that is that rare situation where it actually happened. I've always said that you know a, a great writer needs an editor, and a great director also needs an editor, um, whether we mean the editor on the page or the editor actually in the editing room cutting film. But 
here are two people who have already proven themselves, proven their ability to make great movies. And, you know, with Raiders, there's not a bad shot in the bunch. There's not a, a scene or a line in that movie that makes me cringe at all, even if they are scenes that push the boundary of belief. Um it doesn't uh, it doesn't make me angry the way that other movies <laughs> might attempt to do that. So um, it, it is the, that rare moment where everything comes together exactly right, starting with the script because it's a, an absolutely fantastic script. Um, but yeah, every element that came into that was absolutely the right element at the right time and done with the right amount of restraint. And I think in today's world of CGI effects, I don't know that we would get the same kind of restraint and efficiency of storytelling. And actually, that's where I think that George Lucas is at his best. That's why I think that Star Wars Episode Four is so good, because there's an efficiency to that storytelling um, that is forced upon you when you have either budget or time or other constraints pushing at you. I think as well here, it and and last point here we'll kind of move on is these are two of the most creative people in Hollywood and and two of the people I think that are willing to take the most chances um and and I I say that specifically because uh, and and I think it it's rings most true with Lucas because not only is is he a creative in in the truest sense of the word um, but he's also somebody who just, he, if he believed in something, he would put everything into it. His money, um, his time, you know, his life. And he did that over and over again with, with the films that he would make. And I, I think that's that's a unique thing in Hollywood, uh, to have a true creative be behind things. And sometimes his films work, and sometimes they're not as good. And, but every time you can, uh, the, the passion driving it, I think, is, is pretty incredible. And that's what... When you put Spielberg and Lucas together, these are two guys I feel like, could you just imagine having a conversation with them and, and, and as smart as they are and what they know about film and, and, and uh, what they've accomplished in their lifetime? I mean, um, when it comes to the, the way they have revolutionized movies and what we think of them, I mean... It's Spielberg and Lucas who made us think of the blockbuster in the first place with things like Jaws and then Star Wars and then Indiana Jones. I mean, they're the ones who who created that genre (laughs) in that way. Whether all of their movies have been fantastic... Um, I this it's one of the things I I just appreciate about them. And and, and, uh, I can never be overly critical of them because of, of all they've done and so maybe I probably have a little bit maybe too much of a soft spot for those guys but um okay let's just talk about the adventure what are those things that you guys I mean every time they come on screen now you just still love and is there any part of the movie that you're just like oh god that still bothers me even today <laughs> <laughs> okay so in the, in the interest of 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 this particular segment we all know the film so well we all we all know what what scenes we really 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 love and and i can say from the beginning to the end i could cop out like that but <laughs> but if we want to i'm going to turn i'm going to turn this the the focus around a little differently here and i'm going to go for a scene that i still would like to have a little bit of mental resolution on and it's when indy 
is in a firefight, and what I mean firefight, a gunfight scene uh, at uh, in Nepal, in Marion Ravenwood's bar. He opens up the scene with a revolver, and the cutaway is to an automatic. And I'd like to know where that automatic came from, because in the scene previous to that, he says to Marcus as he's packing his bags for Nepal, you know what a careful guy I am. And he pulls out a well-oiled Webley Mark III, or Mark IV, excuse me, and he tosses it into his luggage. And that's the only armament that I believe, aside from the bullwhip, that I believe that he was carrying with him. So it's just one of those scenes where I'm like, oh, you know, even if he grabbed it from the ground or if he took it from one of the assailants uh, that was in the bar, that's fine. But it's just one of those. Was this like the first scene shot and they just chose to change the, you know, the, the prop master just gave him an automatic and oh wait, no, 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 wait a second. We we're going to shoot a scene later with a revolver that, you know, that the scene where he gives the revolver in the beginning to Belloc. Maybe that's where something changed. I don't know. It's just one of those scenes that was just a little kind of mm, for me. Of course, then there's the gunfight. You're thinking he's holding the revolver still and you're like, he'd be out of bullets like. 10 minutes ago like <laughs> come on uh and and of course it's it's movie magic and we just let it go but sure. yeah that is it is very funny because i i did i don't know if i've ever picked up on that yeah he wheels around from behind the pillar and he fires a couple shots because the sound effects of of the revolver are fantastic and then he coils back and you can actually see him ditch a magazine and search for to reload as he as as the uh, machine the guy with the machine gun is just you know just riddling that that pillar with with machine gun fire, then he comes back and he's actually two holding the uh, forty five because the forty five was the standard issue sidearm for military at the time, and he just keep you know I was just like whoa whoa hey ho you know those are two completely different silhouettes for firearms completely so interesting you know I I think that if I had thought about that. I would have thought that he got it from somebody in there, uh, just in in the chaos of what was going on. Um, it didn't bother me as much as the uh, the opening run on the the temple um, to steal the golden fertility idol. Um, that we go through all these series of rooms and traps, and uh, when he gets into the room, finally uh, there's sunlight streaming in into that room and I'm thinking you know if you had just walked around the woods a little longer you could have looked down and uh, probably you know lowered a rope in there and tied it around the idol and just pulled it up and then gone on your way <laughs> of course we would have missed a lot of interesting action but you, you know. would have been chased by a ginormous paper mache ball <laughs> like almost killed Harrison Ford I mean right. <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, yeah, it does seem that there are other ways to get into that temple. His problem was he didn't speak Hovitos, so. Yeah, that's true. He (laughs) would have known. So he probably couldn't read it either. Right, right. Well, if if we're going to start with things that still bother us, for me, it's the submarine. Yeah. How Mm. in the world does Indy survive? Because it makes it look like they're going to submerge. You, you get that feeling as they're moving forward. The guys are rotating the levers in the submarine. It looks like they're, you know, opening the ballast tanks. How in the world? I mean, I I don't care who you are. You can't hang on a periscope for, for that long. And then, of course, if they're running on top, uh, it, that's fine. But you, standard procedure at that point is to have lookouts on the conning tower. 
at all times if you're running up top. So Indy would have been seen unless he's just like holding on the side, <laughs> even though he's not because he climbs up on the contact. So every time I still watch that movie, I'm like, this just, it to me, it's almost worse than the refrigerator because the refrigerator I can just buy. You know, it's <laughs> it's stupid, but yeah, he gets in the refrigerator. It Yeah, whatever. But this one, it was just like, really? Maybe it's just because it's been bothering me for longer as a kid, I even thought, how does he hold on that long? That's a long time. I, I think I thought the same thing. And then I tried to do the mental gymnastics in my head to make it fit with reality. You know? <laughs> and I thought, okay, well, <laughs> well, the submarine only is submerged when it's going to attack. Because otherwise, you're, you know, you, you can't run off battery that long. It's more efficient for the sub to be on the surface when you're just going around. You're trying to get from point A to point B. You want to be on the surface. You only want to be submerged when you're on attack. And we don't know that the submarine is actually going to attack. And um, and then I thought, well, even if they're under, they would probably have the periscope up for a good part of that. And yeah, it would be a real pain to hold on to that periscope for that long, but but maybe, just maybe, he could do that. And if they had to come up far enough, and if you had lookouts, well, he's just hugging the side of that ship as best he can. There are rails, there are other things for him to hold on to, and maybe it just wasn't that long. But he uses uh, yeah, the I don't know to for strap him to the side of the submarine. Right, yeah. right, exactly. Yeah. So maybe it was stuff like that that I kept thinking that maybe, just maybe, there's a way for him to make it through. You know. Um, it bothered me, but it, it didn't take me out of the movie. I think one of the things that I just, you know, at that point, I it's it's been how many years now, and I just I let it go. It doesn't matter. It's just a movie. You know, you just realize <laughs> it's just a movie, you know. So what if he falls out of a plane and lands on an inflatable boat with, you know, uh, <laughs> short round and the the most annoying woman ever it doesn't matter you know um there's every every indie movie has a point of complete and utter disbelief in it where you're just like what sometimes there's two uh like temple doom has two and and uh, or, i can or think a of, whole movie yeah I, I can think of two in the crystal skull where i'm just like ah if you just cut those two scenes i would be much i would be much happier with this film so you know and Instead of going in it for like the scene to scene to scene, because we could spend an entire five podcasts on this, what I think <laughs> that Raiders does impeccably well is its pacing. I mean, it, it really hits, it gives you the beats exactly where you need to be. It it drives your emotion and it, it lets you kind of rise and fall, the crescendo of emotion and then the bursting of that bubble so you can like jump back in your seat after you've been clinging on to the front seat for so long, the, the seat in front of you in the theater where your fingernails are just digging into somebody else's shoulder. I mean, those that's how this movie kind of like gives you that, just that incredible roller coaster ride. I mean, it really is because this movie just toys with every emotion that you have. But they also do things really smartly and they bring you back to exactly what this movie is about with some very key signature moments. And one of my all-time favorite scenes just to remind everyone what this is all about is when India is in the map room and he needs and and the rope was pulled out of the map room and he needs to find a way out and solid drops him a makeshift rope full of torn rags and flags and at the very end of that was a Nazi flag 
And that just basically brought everything home that this is what this movie is about. It's trying to defeat the world's greatest evil. You know, and it's it's, you know, the the sequence of trying to dig in the desert and try to find all the different ways into the well of souls. And all of that is fantastic. But at at the very base of this movie, it is a movie of good versus evil. And I think that just really just hammers that home. And that's three quarters of the way into the movie. And it just sets you back into the whole, okay, Indy, get back on your horse, literally, because you're making this up as you go along. Find the Ark and get this thing back to the museum because Hitler's on the move. The Nazis are all over the desert. You're this close to the Well of the Souls. Belloc is just stomping around trying to steal what is yours and you could never have. And Marion Ravenwood is getting drunk in a tent. <laughs> that is a great scene. It, it, it's um, it's definitely sinister, you know. And And when it happens... The very first time I saw it, you, you kind of hesitate for a moment and you think, oh, he just got caught by the Nazis. You know, not just that it's Salah pulling together what he can pull together. So um, that that is a really interesting scene. Um, I would have to say that, you know, one of my favorite scenes of all time is probably the most obvious favorite scene, which is shooting the swordsman in the middle of the marketplace. You know, it's just, it's one of those great moments. We talk about a movie where everything right came together at the right moment with the right people. And that's one of those happy accidents you do not plan for in a movie. I think we all know without going into gory detail why they had to shoot that scene the way they shot it. Harrison Ford was not well Mm -hmm. that day. And to cut it short, said, look, when I just shoot the guy, and it's brilliant because it just says so much about that character. He's tired. He's worn out. Enough fun and games. Just plug the guy so we can move on. Um, and Indy always shoots first. He does. <laughs> yeah, right. Right. Yeah, absolutely right. He does. Um, and, and I think one of the other things that that I find to be very interesting particularly about the first three Indiana Jones movies, is that when you get to the ending of Raiders, if we've looked at this character of Indiana Jones, I I, I would classify him. He's a guy with a a strong intellect and a a great curiosity. And he's sort of like, uh, he's an agnostic pragmatist. He's a guy who just purely lives in the real world, just purely from day to day to do the job, get the thing, and the reward is just to have it, to study it, to put it in a museum. And I think one of the greatest things about Raiders of the Lost Ark is that when you get to the end and it's this just the the hounds of hell are released <laughs> through the ark right and everybody is wiped out in front of him that indy never sees what happens he he gets to go home with this thing that he has no idea what happened and he's sort of he's just allowed to sort of make it up in his own head well it, it was the right choice it was a good choice to close my eyes and hope for the best same kind of thing, same kind of position that he's in in Temple of Doom. The rocks have no intrinsic value to Indy. They only have value to the villagers who believe in the power of those rocks. He's just there because he's in a bad situation and he's got to help out. <laughs> you know, I think that's something really cool about that character um, is that he doesn't get wrapped up in 
in the mysticism of what's going on. That maybe, and we're jumping way ahead because this is really a show about raiders, but I think that's one of the, the problems that I had with Crystal Skull is that it's a movie that takes what it does very literally. It says, from the very beginning, literally there are aliens, and literally this story is about aliens, and literally Indiana Jones will end up in, a, in an alien-built device that changes our whole concept of how the world operates you then remove that element of kind of just fantasy and imagination and that separation that Indy has from all of that. Um, but anyway, that, that, that's why I, uh, that's why the, the ending, the way that Raiders ends, I think is very powerful. One of the things that I, I really like about this film and it is in retrospect is the scene where Indy doesn't see uh, he knows not to look this time and, and why because well we've seen Temple of Doom and he understands that after his experience with these stones there are things out there that he can't explain and he'll probably never be able to explain and he's kind of learned what to play with and what not to play with yeah that'll really exemplify there in the in the last crusade and then the final nail in the coffin is the scene in Crystal Skull where Indy completely understands there are things that are beyond him and they're beyond this world and you don't ask you just don't ask um and and maybe it's better to not even go looking for um and and for me i i I really liked the progression through each of the films especially when you watch them chronologically that this character is learning and growing he's 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 gone from being that kind of pragmatist and that agnostic to being somebody who's a little bit more respectful of the myths of other peoples because there's probably some sort of truth in them that he doesn't or won't ever understand Uh, he goes from being the fortune hunter to the person who is is more about the people around him he kind of becomes a family man by the end as well uh, through all that so it is a it is a remarkable series because as much fun as it is Every single one of the films is building on itself and it's telling you something about this character and there's a great progression. Um, And I I think what works for Raiders is that the moment the character comes on screen and you don't even see him, they do all that with the backlighting and, you know, the, the silhouette and everything and, you know, he whips the gun out of the guy's hand and everything. And when you finally see this guy's face as he's looking at the map, you know who this person is it all just works and i think that's what makes raiders so fantastic is that norm i think you might have said it early to me in the end raiders is a near perfect film uh because there isn't anything about it that really just doesn't work on a whole and and that is very 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 rare uh to me i'd probably put just a few other films like that up there, like Casablanca, I think is a perfect film. Uh, I think uh, Empire Strikes Back is a is a perfect film. Uh, I don't have any problems with that movie. Uh, it's my favorite Star Wars movie, and I think Raiders on a whole is just is just I'm gonna say is damn near perfect. Uh, so, and one of the reasons because of that, guys, uh, we'd be remiss if we just didn't talk about a little bit a whole other character in the movie, the music, John Williams. Uh, what can we say? Wait, I mean, are, are you talking about Johnny Williams from Lost in Space? John Williams, the uh, acoustic guitarist? 
<laughs> no, 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 no. I'm talking about the John Williams. You know, Star Wars, Jaws, Superman, Sugarland Express, Jones. 1941. Uh, Gosh, it's just amazing. The, the litany what of all of uh, yeah, the litany of all the stuff that he's that he's been associated with between Spielberg and Lucas. There's a great soundtrack out there. Um, it's the Spielberg collaboration, and it basically does all the highlights of all of. John Williams' work with Steven Spielberg. But I, I like how you phrased that, Matthew. It is another character because Raiders of the Lost Ark is, it really taps into certain emotions and nothing really does that much better than a really good soundtrack. It can bring so much to a scene. It can bring so much out of an experience. And John Williams does it better than most, if not at that time, the best in the industry because he what he does well is he creates themes and he creates certain pockets of music that allow you to associate with not just the movie in general, but a certain character or a certain situation. Everyone knows the Star Wars fanfare. Everyone knows the first couple notes of Jaws. Everyone knows the Imperial theme and the menace that it brings or the love theme that Leia's theme brings, the heartbreak that uh, a lot of uh, his just his huge sweeping grand orchestral arrangement with the London Symphony Orchestra can can bring to a film or just the sheer energy and, and spectacle it I mean he he creates a lot of the fuel for your imagination because he links your emotional interest and involvement with a film so delicately and personally because everyone reacts to music differently but he seems to be able to create that really nice thread that pulls you even deeper into the story and at the very end of Raiders the Raiders march even though you feel defeated the fight must continue and you feel the drive of the march uplift you at the end even though the ending isn't very uplifting at all because the arc was lost again lost in bureaucracy lost in a warehouse lost to antiquity lost to history Again, it was buried in a different well of the souls, and you're like, man, what do we what do we do all this for? And then, dun 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 dun. dun. It's like that serial, and the adventure continues. <laughs> because that's how I felt walking out of that movie. I'm like, I can't wait to see the next film because showing up you know, next time exactly. in the Temple of Doom, it's Indiana Jones. <laughs> yeah. Defeated by the bureaucracy of his own country, Indiana Jones dusts off his fedora, cracks the bullwhip, and goes on another adventure. Dun, 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 dun. I mean, you can feel it. And that's the success of this movie. It really does bring out the best hallmarks. And John Williams' score really does uh, play a huge part of that. See, you guys thought I was kidding, but but John Williams, Time Tunnel, Lost in Space, Land of the Giants, uh, Beyond the No, I'm sorry, uh, Valley of the Dolls, right, right. <laughs> and uh, even uh, brought in for a little work on the Poseidon Adventure. Man knows his way around some very interesting projects, but I think that John Williams that we all know and love is pretty much from Star Wars on. You know that that's when you really get to sink your teeth into these like just massive emotional really over the top uh the, the marches the hero music and uh you can play like i said you play one note of that soundtrack and i just i know what it is immediately and i want to see the movie immediately it is brilliant and 
it's one of those things where you know that if you didn't hear it in the next movies, it wouldn't be an Indiana Jones movie if it didn't have that music. It's like when we all went to go see Never Say Never Again and they didn't play the Bond music and you went, well, this is not a James Bond movie. It doesn't have the Bond theme in it. (laughs) You know, they can call this guy James Bond, but it doesn't have the music. So um, it, it is as intricately tied to that movie as Harrison Ford's face and that hat and that whip and miles and miles of desert. <laughs> it's not the same without it. I think one of the, the hallmarks of his music for the films that he's worked on, and, and especially with Indiana Jones and especially with all of the Star Wars films, is you can literally watch the movie in your head as you play the soundtrack. So as mm-hmm. you listen to Raiders, you know exactly what's happening at that moment because you know what the cue sounds like in the film. It's that integral. It's that important, especially I think of the love theme and how that just kind of the way that he weaves it in from the very beginning when you see, you know, Mary and, and Indy for the first time and they're having their argument, which is so subtly done but what they're talking about is the affair that they had when they were younger and how it really burned her and and you know what you're doing exactly (laughs) all of these things but the music it's adding to all of that so finally by the time when you get to the the full on unveiling of that love theme you know it, it it really just encapsulates everything that they are as characters and it's not gorgeous uh, and and utterly beautiful it fits the characters you know it fits these two imperfect kind of rough around the edges people and and, and just the way that i think that um, williams works with lucas and and spielberg i'm i'm always so th- grateful for them bringing that back especially george lucas for saying we are going to have a symphonic score we are going to basically have a symphony for our score in film again with Star Wars. And what we think of as the, the score comes back with Star Wars. You know, it had been lost a, a lot in the 70s. Um, and I always appreciate that he brought that back because it actually kind of bridged me into classical music and, mm-hmm. and listening to classical music. And so if John Williams can get me to then jump and, and want to listen to, you know, Beethoven or Vivaldi or, you know, Rachmaninoff, Bach, all of these guys to which he takes his cues from, I, it's it's amazing. So I, I really appreciate the work that he's done and helping me really appreciate the beauty of music and it's one of the things I, I enjoy so much uh, say about the way that they did all the Middle Earth films is that music was a huge part of that as well. Music has become an integral part of our, our film life, whether it's John Cusack holding a boombox over his head or it's John Williams' March playing in front of Superman. It, it, it speaks to who that character is at that point, and that's really cool that music means indiana jones you know that that sound that those sounds put together mean indiana jones you know those sounds put together mean harry potter uh you know john williams is responsible for scoring the greatest characters uh, almost that we've seen on screen let's not forget superman as well yeah. 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 Oh, no, yeah. not at all. You yeah. can't forget Superman. That, that's a really fine line, too, because I, I find that with a lot of movies now, there are a lot of soundtracks that are very sort of utilitarian. 
They they do their oh, yeah. job to punch up the action scenes and to let you know that you're now in a uh, in an emotional scene. And then there are soundtracks that are very overbearing, and they they try to force a theme on you or force an emotional response on you. It's the rare soundtrack that can be so memorable that you walk out of a theater going, I have to own that, (laughs) you know, that hasn't overstayed its welcome, too. Because I I feel like if I come out of a movie and I'm just thinking about the soundtrack, well, maybe there is a deficiency in the movie as well. You know, that it it did... uh, Tron Legacy is... uh, Or, or, I'm sorry, what what was the last Tron movie? It was Tron Legacy, Legacy, right? Tron Legacy, Yeah, yeah. yeah. Perfect example. That soundtrack came out. Everybody got it. I remember having that soundtrack months before the movie came out. Was Daft Punk? And I was, yeah, yeah. And I was just blown away. I was like, "This is great music." And then I saw the movie, and I really couldn't tell you anything about the movie. Now it had some great visual scenes, but that was about it. It felt very inconsequential. But the soundtrack is still great. Um, the soundtrack should not have overshadowed the movie in that respect. Um, but what John Williams has done in, you know, since the seventies in his career and, and even with the Irwin Allen stuff too, um, is really laid the right bedrock to, uh, to give you that, that emotional response to it as well. Well, I think what it's amazing and what I miss when a, a score isn't like this. And again, it's what I appreciate them find them actually doing it in the, Middle Earth films because I felt like it worked is is that you you create a sound that links with a character so that when that character comes on screen there's a there's an audio representation of that character as well and they go together to inform who that character is because it's a visual and audio medium uh, th- that's what film is so when those two work in concert and it's done really well like you're saying John it makes magic. That's what we call mm. movie magic. Yeah, you know? truly. Um, it, it's, and I think Williams is able to do that in a way that a lot of of um, composers uh, just don't do as well. There's some great ones out there. I, I love a good James Horner score. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I really in, enjoy some of Hans Zimmer's work. Some of it I don't like. You know, he's hit or miss for me. I, I really enjoy uh, the work of, of Howard Shore. A majority of the soundtracks that I have come from John Williams. And the reason is is because it's a distinctive world that the moment a sound hits, a few notes hit, I'm transported to Indiana Jones world. You know, I'm transported off with Superman. I'm transported to Hogwarts mm-hmm. with Harry Potter. Mm-hmm. That's the amazing beauty of what music can do for us. I mean, much like what we were talking about earlier about Tom Selleck possibly of possibly being the man in the hat, could you imagine this movie, and I'm not saying it would have been better or worse, but could you imagine this movie if, say, Jerry Goldsmith, you know, would have taken mm-hmm. the helm of, of the soundtrack because, you know, his his score to Star Trek The Motion Picture is breathtaking. Yeah. Um, but he may not have been the right voice the right sound for Raiders again James Horner also kind of like on the rise at the time fantastic fantastic composer um Howard Shore it would have been interesting if he actually scored uh Raiders from you know the the body of work that we know like you said Matthew from Lord of the Rings because these guys create Basil Polidorus another one where he scored Mm -hmm. Conan the Barbarian another fantastic soundtrack 
because they create those character moments. They allow you to uh, invest yourself not only just in the story but in the character as well. So it, you, you try and you know when you know soundtracks the way that we know soundtracks, and you try and play around with the musical. Uh, stylization of of what these composers would bring to a movie like this. It's interesting to try and figure out what would Horner have done in this situation or what would have Shore have done in this situation because it really would have informed the movie in a completely different way because these guys are all brilliant in their own style. It's neither better nor worse. It's just, you know, what kind of steak do you want today? You know, you, you know <laughs> what kind of cut? You know, it's, it, it's all good, but it's just a different flavor. Right. You know? I have a, a question that I would, was thinking of because of the, the music conversation. And, and um, I was thinking about, and then what was playing in my head actually as we're talking, was the love theme. And it got me thinking about Karen Allen playing Marion Ravenwood in, in the movie. And uh, we hadn't talked about her yet. And I, I feel like it, we'd be remiss if we didn't because she's a big part of this film. Uh, give me your thoughts on, on her and her portrayal in the film. And, and I. And I kind of want to focus, I think, a little bit on on the way that she's not, she's not a damsel in distress in this film, but she's also not completely the the modern woman yet. She's kind of a somewhere in between. For me, I really like that. What do you guys think about just their choice of her as as the lead actress, and then and then how she plays the role? You know, it, it's kind of weird, right, that Karen Allen didn't become a massive star after that movie. Like, it really seems out of nowhere that you don't hear anything about Karen Allen before Raiders of the Lost Ark, and then we're all just sort of waiting for Karen Allen to come back by the time of Crystal Skull. But here she is, out of obscurity, being in one of the biggest movies ever made and playing what I think is a really cool character. Um, Like you said, she's not the damsel in distress. She's not also not a femme fatale. She's she's not like the the classic screen beauty. She's kind of got this rough edge. She's a bit of a tomboy. She talks back. I, I mean, there are all these great elements to her character, and I'm glad that they didn't do something for the next movie where it's the further adventures of Indy and mm-hmm. Marion. I think it's a little weird that in the next movie you've got <laughs> you've got what was trying to be uh, the, this classic movie star beauty out of place. It, it, that relationship didn't really work. Um, it had its moments. I mean, it did for Steven Spielberg off screen. Course, well, it did. It yeah. did for Steven Spielberg, <laughs> and, and I don't dislike Kate Capshaw, um, but there were choices made in that movie that I would not have necessarily made. Um, you call him Doctor Jones, doll. No, see, I love, I love, love, love Short Round. Short Round is the star of that movie. He's great, and, you know, that that's the movie where Indy becomes a father, which to me sort of hurts him becoming a father later on. But, again, different podcast, different day. Um, I, I think Marion is such a great character, and, and it is so strange to me that we don't have more of Karen Allen later. I love the scene in the tent when when she's first tried to play Belloc, and I love Endy leaving her there and her just getting pissed off. It's great. Every moment of that is great, and it feels real. Man, man, is she awfully good in that. Yeah, what else can I say? Yeah, I think the first time I remember seeing Karen Allen after Raiders, because uh, this is a film that was introduced to me far after that, and when I was older was in um, National Lampoon's Animal House. 
mm-hmm. because she played um, Otter's girlfriend. And or was it Boone? I'm sorry, Boone's girlfriend. And, you know, she was spunky then and she had, you know, kind of shades of uh, the feistiness. But, you know, Indy does not suffer fools. Yeah. And he would not suffer uh, a girl that was latched onto him uh, who was just a doll. Mm-hmm. You know, quote unquote doll, the, uh, the, uh, <laughs> you know, the nomenclature of the time, you know, she, uh, well, obviously she was rough and tumble. She was the daughter of a very famous, well-traveled professor of archeology. span And she, I, you know, she was resentful of that. You know, I was tired of following him on all these different trips. I was tired of digging up all this stuff. And he paid attention to more of these dusty books and old bones than he did to me. And you're turning into the same guy and I'm not going to have it. And I think... Mm-hmm. I think he liked that about her, that she just wasn't, she just wasn't accessible that, you know, in the, in the traditional way of, of a girlfriend or of a companion, you know, when, when she saw him and she says, Indiana Jones, it was almost flirtatious. And that smile that, that Harrison Ford mm-hmm. just flashed back her. He's like, yeah, I'm back. <laughs> and all she wanted to do was deck him. For it's 10 brilliant. years, she wanted just to just to wail on his chin, and she got it. And that's the best introduction to a character that I have seen in a long time, where she's like, you know what? I'm going to get my goods on you. I'm going to get my, you're going to get your comeuppance because you wronged me. And now we can be friends. <laughs> you know, because we got to get that out of the way, that all that baggage. So she has a lot, uh, you know, she has a devil-may-care attitude. She, she knows what she's into when she's going to join up with him. And she knows what the situation, what the score is, because she's lived it in the periphery of the relationship between Professor Ravenwood and Indy uh, as they kind of forced her out of the the relationship that that she had with her father as his Professor Ravenwood's surrogate son that Indy became in a way. So she has to fight. She has to fight for every little scrap of um, attention or respect you know, or uh, independence that that she wants to exert for her lifestyle because that's a man's world back then. It's a man's man's world, you know, and <laughs> and and she has to be able to take care of herself because unless it was supremely dire, Indy wouldn't. He's like, you got to keep up. You know, this is these are the stakes. You know, we're we're fighting Hitler here. If you're not on board, sound mind and body, and I'm leaving you behind. Sorry, and that's what makes Indy the great a hole that he is because he will do that. He has a higher purpose. His purpose is to protect antiquity, and she knows that. But uh, yeah, um, she was fantastic in it. It's too bad that we didn't see any more of her after that because she was uh, she was a real force to be reckoned with in that movie. I think what I love about her and what makes her so freaking attractive in the film is that she can give it back to Indiana Jones in a way that nobody else can in the film. You know, she can keep up with him for the most part. She can smart talk him like nobody's business. You know, she just has it everywhere that it counts to be a woman who can who can be a foil for Indiana Jones in a way that none of the other character actresses that they got for any of the other films do and that was one of my favorite parts honestly of the crystal skull was having her back and having her giving it back to indy just the way she did you know it's like they picked up right where they left off it was really kind of fantastic because her and harrison ford have this great back and forth together and i i think that that's what for me just it does it makes karen allen work so that in in those points where you might feel like 
I don't know, she sells her place in the film. Like every time something bad's happening to her or any of that, she just she plays it just right. So you you feel bad for what's happening to her. She's getting dragged around by all these men and having to follow behind them and try and keep up and and do all these things, you know, that nobody really is paying attention to her. And uh, the fact that at the very end of the movie, you know, she's like, I'll buy you a drink. Uh, you know, it, it, she is the quintessential um, adventure girl that you want by your side in a film. And, and, um, I think that they do a real service to, to women in the movie by just not having her be the whole damsel in distress the whole time. Uh, there's plenty of times where like Indy, she's making it up as she's going along, trying to help him with the plane scene. She's trying to help Indiana Jones. She just happens to get caught. It's not her fault. You know, it's the same thing that happens to Indy when he's trying to do something. It doesn't go right. So in a lot of ways, they're a mirror for each other. And, 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 uh, literally a mirror for each other when she hits him with one on the boat. So, uh, How poetic. <laughs> Very nice. Well, one last thing that Norm, uh, when we first started talking about doing this on the 602, you asked me a question that I have had to think about the whole time, and does Indiana Jones hold up? And specifically for the video game generation, the generation that, that didn't necessarily grow up with Indiana Jones being the legend, but just being another film that's out there. What do you guys think? Because I think this is, the more you think about it, uh, the more, as much as we all love the film, this is a really, it's a big question, um, especially when it comes to films that stand the test of time. You know, I'm going to give John and and Ken your partner on Mission Log huge credit for what I'm about to say because I love how you, <laughs> I love on Mission Log how you, you use uh, one of the categories of when you review something is does it withstand the test of time? And that's something for a film like this because I'm in my 40s now and when I watch things like you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark or the original Star Wars, I mean, do these still stand the test of time? For me, they do, but I have so much nostalgia and history built into these films that it's hard for me to, to approach watching something like this with a completely open mind because most of my life has been influenced and affected by these films in some way. So... I'm going to go back to um, rip from today's headlines type of story. It happened a couple weeks ago where Kanye West was on TV and something was being tweeted in his Twitter feed. Someone was saying that the guitarist that was backing him up will be a huge star because thanks, thanks to Kanye West, that guitarist's name was Sir Paul McCartney of the Beatles. Oh, you're killing me. So oh. to bring that type of a filter to today's audience I'm not sure if this film really would resonate anymore because I'm not sure if this is a film that that still resonates with an audience of today because they are used to a certain type of media a certain type of format a certain type of thinking a certain because I'm, I'm saying this generationally and and I apologize to anyone out there who who takes offense to this but I have to take my viewpoint from the position of my own age and it's hard for me to to not see how this film wouldn't resonate with with people because the storytelling is such high quality the theme is so timeless good versus evil the i mean even if you wanted to spruce it up with modern cgi or clean it up with uh modern effects the effects by and large are still fantastic they still hold up 
So when a movie of this caliber is questioned whether or not it would resonate with an audience today, it's it's tough to say because it's a movie that's so good. My opinion is it has to because quality never ages, in my opinion. Well, Matt, you know, ever since I saw this on the list and um, and Matt, we kind of just brought it up very briefly uh, before the show. Um, I've really been torn about it. And um, I was thinking to myself that uh, this movie is now further removed from today. The, the, the day that we're recording this podcast is further removed from the original release date of Raiders of the Lost Ark than 1981 was removed from a couple of movies that I love, uh, North by Northwest and uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Mm. All right. So there are two movies that came out in the 50s that 8-year-old me, 12-year-old me, 18, 20, 40-year-old me loves and just think that they do stand the test of time and they hold up hands down do i think that i was a weird kid watching and loving those movies as much as i did probably so and would that be a tough sell to a room full of my peers at those various ages probably so unless you happen to be in a room full of film fanatics who just would want to see something that you say hey look i promise this is a great movie it's got that you know it's got great effects it's got a submarine getting attacked by a giant squid it, you know there may be ways to sell it um but let's also face it there are no more video stores for people to walk into and see a great box cover and go hmm this looks interesting i should check it out so in a crowded marketplace it's a little more difficult to just stumble across things that are really great now fortunately movies like raiders of the lost ark movies like star wars You've got rabid fan followings to this day who, like we're doing on this show right now, are being very vocal about it and kind of really making a case for it of why this movie is great. And I'm kind of heartened by, actually, I've had more than one friend who has done this. They contact me and said, hey, uh, my kid who is now, you know, five years old or something, I'm ready to introduce Star Wars to them. What should I do? Should I start and go in order? episode one episode two episode three or should i show it the way that we saw it growing up episode four episode 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 five episode six and i'm like yeah perfect and then wait 15 years <laughs> and show them episodes one two and three um i i do think that part of it has to do with the the timing when you're introduced to these you know, there may be kids in their 20s now in film school who have never seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, but they're going to see it because it is a great example of big budget blockbuster action storytelling from that period, from the early 1980s. So I don't think it's ever going to go away, but I do know that I'm going to reach a time when I will be in a room with people of a certain younger age than me. And the majority of them will not have seen this movie. Now, if I'm in a room full of people who are my age and your age and your age, Matt, I know that the majority of them not only have seen this movie, but they are intimately familiar with every frame of it, you know, because they saw it a dozen times. 
So it's a tough call. Does the quality of the production hold up? Well, I think hands down, yeah. I think the effects are are masterful. The stunts are incredible. I think that even if you have only been brought up on a diet of CG, I think if you pop this movie in for somebody who knows nothing else and they look at it and they see this guy actually doing something like being pulled under a truck, I think their minds are going to be blown because you you don't you don't feel anything for a CG version of a guy getting pulled under a truck. You know he's just going to come out the other end and look fine and jump up and land on the back of the truck like Spider-Man. But this guy, well, not Harrison Ford, but Vic Armstrong actually did that. That holds up. That holds up no matter what. And then I would take that same kid who had never seen that, but is blown away by it. And then I'd go back and show him something like, you know, Harold Lloyd doing his own stunts or Buster Keaton doing his own stunts Mm -hmm. because that stuff holds up but in a different way. Um, It's an easier pill for somebody who's not a cinephile to swallow a big budget color widescreen movie with phenomenal effects than to say, you know, start a film course with Casablanca, which I love, but I know that there are kids who just aren't going to swallow a black and white movie until you can put it in the right context for them. That's a very long-winded way of saying I'm torn. Like, I have very high hopes that this holds up and it will continue to hold up, but I also feel like there's work that needs to be done to ensure that. What about you, Matt? Wow. Um, well, I, I do have to say this. You mentioned some films that I grew up with as well that um, I fell in love with as a kid, North by Northwest. So we're separated by some years. And mm-hmm. yet um, my parents had us lot, watch a lot of old films uh, because uh, they they appreciated them, but they were also very protective of my sister and I when we were younger. And so we saw just a lot of older movies. And I could never thank them enough for that uh, because uh, through their, their kind of sheltering us in that way, they actually gave me the ability to appreciate a lot of things that even people my own age don't appreciate as much, which is those older black and white movies that tend to be slower. They're character driven. They're dialogue driven. All of those things that there's people that don't generally get into these days unless they're, you know, cinephiles and like indie films, you know, um, you know, you don't get people running to the theater these days to see a great film like The Spectacular Now. Why? Because it's, it doesn't have any special effects in it. It's a character driven piece and uh, it's all talk and it's about characters growing throughout the film. And that's just not what people really respond to. So I think that uh, when you compared it to a, a film like 20,000 Leagues of the Sea or something like North by Northwest, yes, I think this film holds up because I think it's the same type of caliber of film that will carry on as we go forward. Now, whether or not people will appreciate it I think has to do with how parents raise their children. (laughs) (laughs) And um, that's the only thing I I can say is that I think that if you immediately start raising your kids on on things of lesser value, we'll just put it that way, they're not going to appreciate the things that were really good like this. You know, it's it's like, um, well, why does my kid like good books? Well, probably because he didn't read to him as a kid. 
You know, you mm-hmm. weren't reading him The Hobbit. You weren't reading him Chronicles of Narnia. You know, you weren't introducing him to the Phantom Tollbooth or any of those things. Uh, you were just letting him read Captain Underpants all the time. <laughs> you know, that's yeah. that's that. It's the same thing with film. Does this hold up though? I think that if you pop this in for a nine-year-old today, I still think they're going to get excited for the most part. You know, there's a guy running around with a gun and a hat and a whip. He's (laughs) running away from massive, massive boulders and shooting swordsmen and, and, you know, running into snakes and, and, you know, that aren't on planes. And I mean, you know, so uh, I think it's all still exciting enough. It all still really works. And what you said, Norm, about quality never aging, it's why so many people can still regard Casablanca is one of the best movies ever made. And and if you're like me, I, I think it's the best movie ever made. So and it's always debatable. It's it's all about personal tastes and a lot of things when it comes to these kind of questions. But it it's undeniably one of the best movies ever made. And why is that? Because the quality of the storytelling and what's happening there all still works. And I think for Indiana Jones, yeah, I just compared it to Casablanca. It still works for the most part. Will it hold up for the test of time? I'm I'm a little bit on that side though, John, where I think there's work to do for those of us who enjoy film to pass it on and to continue to pass it on Uh, for our kids they pass it on to their kids and that's the way uh, good things generally last and it's still a movie that I I can watch anytime I even watched it today (laughs) just uh, even though we watched my wife and I watched it uh, not too long ago you know I I watched it again today just to, to be refreshed and just to enjoy seeing it again so any final thoughts? Anything that you're just dying to say before we kind of wrap it all up? Go, Norman. Well, by and large, uh, you know, just to, con- to springboard on that last thought, what Raiders of the Lost Ark really is, uh, and it's bare, you know, the bare essentials, is a period piece. And it's a really spectacularly done period piece. And I love how we, we kind of bookend um, talking about this with. Raiders on one hand and Casablanca on the other hand, because essentially it's the same time period. It's that it's that time period where uh, where the world was a little bit more dangerous for the very first time. You know, the Nazi powers were on the rise. You didn't know where your freedoms were being threatened. And because of what Hitler was doing at the time, he was factually trying to find all of these pieces of antiquity in order to inspire his Nazi regime to take over the world through the the powers of these totems, these artifacts, these otherworldly, other spiritually um, imbued items that can't be explained by man. That's a, I mean, at that time in 1936, that must have been utterly terrifying. And being able to bring that type of essence back to a modern audience it reinforces the fact that if done well being able to emulate the feeling of the period of that time can still resonate because again this is a story of good versus evil it's a traditional timeless theme and because it was done so well period pieces usually tend to last a little bit longer in people's minds and in people's opinions 
Amadeus, for example. Amadeus is one of the all-time greatest films, and it was done, aside from the accents, everything was done so perfectly, period. It doesn't matter if you watch it in the 80s or now, because, again, the quality that they infused throughout every part of that film still stands the test of time because it's about the period and also about the music, which is Mozart's music, which also stands the test of time. So going back to Raiders, because it's so good and because they paid attention to all the details, because their authenticity was unparalleled and unmatched for the production of the time, it can still hold up for me because it portrays the period right. And you can't really argue that part of the production because it replicates history so well. If you look in a history book and say, hey, that's a Nazi uniform, and you look at the film, that's a Nazi uniform. There's so many ways that you can just bring it back to a modernistic sense when you're studying it as a, as a historian. And I think that's why this film is so good on so many levels, because it still maintains the quality of the period of the 1940s. There's something really brilliant about not just copying and paying homage to the style of these adventure films from the 30s, that you know Spielberg and Lucas loved these adventure serials and said, hey, we're going to bring this up to the modern era and do it on a big scale and, and make a truly big budget adventure movie for everybody while still tipping the hat, no pun intended, to these things that we loved as kids. And also setting it in that period so again, it's sort of further letting the audience in on the joke. And Norman, you know, as you were saying that, I was thinking how smart it was that when those three original movies came out, um, 1936, 1935 is the period for Temple of Doom. And then by the time we get to Last Crusade, correct me if I'm wrong, I think it's 1938. Mm-hmm. And so they, they jump back and forth in time just a little bit to flesh out the story And, you know, it's a good thing we never got to the 1940s. It's a good thing that we didn't get to World War II, because I think that part of the story becomes a little too real when America actually goes to war. And then we do start to think about the reality of that. But in this little slice of fantasy time that we get, 35, 36, and 38, we can kind of enjoy that innocence of the 1930s adventure style paint with these big broad strokes of good and evil and this is when the world was changing but not cram a history lesson down your throat right. <laughs> you know so all those things talking about making it timeless really come together kind of perfectly in that setting when i think lastly the thing about indiana jones is that it is so much fun and yet with surprising depth Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things that Spielberg and Lucas really do well when they're on their game. Star Wars does that. Um, I I think through all six films, it it does that. And and I'm hoping it will do in the seventh. There's always a depth there that when you peel back the layer, there's something much bigger going on behind the scenes. Uh, The indie films are like that. And uh, these guys understood that. And to have a film stand the test of time, I think it needs both of those things a majority of the time. It needs to be fun. You need to enjoy watching it. And there needs to be some depth there that you can cling on to and kind of find new little tidbits every time you watch it. And I think Indiana Jones does that. Well, guys, 
I cannot express how much fun it is to have <laughs> this panel on on the 602, and I, I think the fans will really uh, enjoy listening to the listeners. Um, guys, it's it's been a treat talking about Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Now, Norm, we didn't talk about the fact that they renamed the movie back in the day, but it's been great talking about not Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, but just Raiders of the Lost Ark. Thank Arc you for clarifying today. that, yeah, by the way. Yeah, I'm glad right. you said that. <laughs> but guys, it's of course not the only thing we've been talking about here on Trek FM this past week. So here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.fm, Standard Orbit. Because it's, it's actually legitimately trying to say something. Yes, it's very Star Trek. It may be the most Star Trek of all Star Trek. Yeah, it's definitely what I would point to as being, this is what science fiction is about. Earl Grey. Kovac will tell us to experience Bij sometimes, in which case we will draw the Bij card, Klingon word for pain. Is so it birthday? It is. It is. It, it's it's going to be a lot of fun. To the journey! That's the one thing we could take from Homecoming is like paragraph one, Chakotay and Seven break up. That's for real. Yeah, they that shake happened. hands and go, hey, it's been fun. It's been nice. Thanks for the picnic. Eh, see then. ya. Commentary, Trek stars. Fair At this enough. point, like they could say, yeah, why not? Star Wars crossover. I would I would essentially say, fine. Both franchises are dead. Let's just sew them together and see what happens. Melodic Treks. One of the most well thought out alien races that you only see in one episode. Yeah, and the music is, is it's menacing without being over menacing, if that makes yeah. sense. Axonar, the official podcast. I think Justin Lin is a, is a fascinating choice to direct because... The Fast and the Furious movies, even though, yeah, they're action-adventure, road race movies, are really about a family. The 602 Club. That's really cool, though. I mean, I, I think that is uh, a fantastic way to get to see just about any movie is, is kind of being able to watch it through a kid's eyes. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out these shows and find out what we've been talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, hit that subscribe button. It helps people find us when they're searching for our shows in iTunes. Also, reviews and star ratings do that as well. So if you give us one of those, we'll definitely give you a shout on the show. But guys, if you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and of course, you can just stream and download the MP3 file from our website, or you can grab the RSS link as well. Now, John, love having you on the show. Tell everybody where they can find you online and even on the network. Man, thank you so much. I, I, I always love doing that. Always. My second one, but always. <laughs> <laughs> love popping in somewhere, somehow at Trek FM. Um, I, I'm very proud that my other show, Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, is a part of the Trek FM network. Um, check us out at missionlogpodcast.com. There's some cool stuff coming up. We got some changes coming up and um, some interesting stuff happening on the website soon. So um, do check us out. I, I don't have a firm release date, but I know that this show will uh, be coming out in, uh, in you know, what, uh, February? Somewhere around there. This show will drop the 24th of February. Great. 
So uh, hopefully end of February, we're going to have some new stuff to show off from Mission Log. So yeah, everybody do check in and you can find us on the website, again, missionlogpodcast.com and uh, Twitter, Facebook, and uh, Skype if you want to leave us a message, Mission Log Pod. Norm, you know, it's always fantastic to have uh, my associate producer back here making sure we're keeping things on schedule. I can't imagine uh, these days just uh, doing the show without you. It's always strange when you're not in your normal seat there here at the bar with me. Where can everybody find you on the network and online? You can always find me here on the network or on the Babel Conference, our dedicated Facebook listeners page, or on Twitter at Norman Lau. That's N-O-R-M-A-N-L-A-O. And I'm also a huge supporter of Alec Peters and the Axonar Project. And you can find me on the dedicated Axonar fan group page on Facebook. You can also listen to me here on Trek FM as the host for Warp 5, our dedicated enterprise podcast. And lastly, as Matthew will say in about a minute, I'm a proud sponsor of Trek FM through Patreon, and I'm an associate producer of four shows, Warp 5, The Orb, The 602 Club, and Axonar, the official Axonar podcast. And I know why I've been having a problem with my recordings of late. Because Ruby, why is that? Ruby is gone, and oh, I have no it. one to yeah. flirt with. Because Marion does not suffer fools. She does not. <laughs> she does not. Thanks for everyone for having so much patience with me um, while I'm working on the show. Uh, the holidays and my work schedule have been a little bit of a challenge, but I promise you that Warp Five will be back online soon. The warp engines have been refit. The warp plasma. Coils have been cleaned. Is it running hot? It's running hot. But we all, the most important thing, we have the decon chamber completely stacked with biogel of varying flavors. Excellent. Oh, hello. That's awesome. So, all right. Stay tuned, people. Save me a seat with T'Pol. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, guys, another way you can keep all of our shows coming to each week is to become a patron of the network on Patreon. If you visit patreon.com slash trekfm, you can find all our current goals and milestone contribution levels along with the great perks that we have for you guys. You can get early access to content like I give to Norm with the 602 Club. You can get exclusive content, producer credits, seats on the content development team, and more. We are a listener-run network, and without you, we can't make this happen. So we appreciate any support that you can give us, and we hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trek.fm. If you'd like to contact us, you can do that at trek.fm slash contact. You can leave a voicemail on the sidebar on the show page, or go to speakpipe.com slash trek.fm. We're on Twitter at trek.fm. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm, or as Norm mentioned, we're on the Babel Conference. Just type B-A-B-E-L conference into the search field on Facebook or go to the website at trek.fm and click discussion on the menu bar. And before we go, we'd like to ask everyone to please support our sponsor who helps bring the 602 Club and all of our shows to you each week. And our sponsor for the show is audible.com. Audible is a great way for you to read all those books that you've always wanted to, and you you know, with your busy schedule, you just don't have time for. As a Trek FM listener, you can get a free audiobook of your choice, along with a 30-day trial to see how great Audible is. Go to audibletrial.com slash trekfm and sign up today. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And we thank Audible for their support at the 602 Club and the Network. And of course, guys, you can find me on Twitter at MattRushing02. You can find me doing The Orb with Christopher Jones, where we talk about Deep Space Nine all the time. You can also find me on Literary Tracks with Dan, where we're talking about the books and comics of Star Trek. 
And you can also find me on my own personal blog where I just write reviews of movies and things that are important to me, other books as well, on 42lifeinbetween.wordpress.com. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And y'all come back now, you hear?